Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today's episode is uh, Connor from the Coyote Collective. I've been meaning to have him on for a while now. And what we're going to talk about is just how he does adventures and fits it into work and how they both are integrated and how it's just nothing he ever expected he'd be doing. And that's what you're going to hear from a lot of folks that do adventure for a living or not adventures, but live this in this mindset. They end up doing something they never imagined they do. For Connor, it's really cool because he's doing it in such a professional way and such an authentic way that um, he's building just really great relationships with people. And in that gives him, you know, jobs to do. And um, he's got just some really cool, beautiful projects going on. So I encourage you to check out his website. Uh, But also, he is, uh, you know, a friend of a friend that I interviewed and now a friend of mine and just a a really cool person living this life very intentionally and around, surrounded by adventure. So um, we learn, we talk about all kinds of different things, just stories of, of actual adventures he's been on and also just kind of his philosophy around adventure and how everything eventually does come full circle. Hard work does pay off. It was a really cool conversation. I hope you enjoy. And also if you celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday because the whole expectation is just getting together with friends, friends and family and eating food. I mean, what, what, what better thing is there than that? Uh, and there, there's no expectations with presents or, you know, anything really just other than getting together and eating. I mean, it's great. Um, so we had a great time. And then the weekend before we did an adventure, 12 of us went on a nearly a 30 mile paddle, about 26 miles down this beautiful swampy, uh, uh, gorgeously pristine Creek, uh, here in central Florida, uh, that is very high right now because of the hurricanes, the recent hurricanes that have gone through, but the water has come down like five feet from its peak and uh, it was gorgeous. Ancient, ancient cypress, gators and birds galore. And just, it was such an amazing experience. If you want to go, we try to do these trips every two to three months. We try to make it closer to two months, um, but we're, we do four to six a year. You should absolutely join us. They're totally free. They're only a weekend. So Friday night through Sunday night, you know, you can come on a Saturday too. You don't have to start right at the beginning we have a ton of people join on Saturday morning. Um, but yeah, th- these trips are awesome. If you're around at all, please reach out. If you don't have a kayak or paddleboard or whatever canoe, we'll, we'll get you one. We've got so much extra stuff. So this this last one was slapped together right last minute, and there was still 12 people that were able to go. So they fill up fast, and they're really, really fun. And we camp in between. And this last one might have been the best camping spot ever. It was an island because the water's high, the river is flowing in places it doesn't normally flow. So it's creating a lot of unique features of the river or the creek this time of year or, or right now because of the hurricanes. And there was an island that we camped on that was covered in giant oak trees. And so everyone was hanging their hammocks or putting their tents, but it was a small little island, had a campfire. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. So uh, come join us and uh, keep living this life full of adventure. So... Here to teach us more about that, let's welcome Connor. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. You heard a little of Connor's story in the intro, and we've been talking for a few minutes now, making all sorts of connections and talking about, you know, the theme of this and and, and talking about how we're both, we both were in Colorado at the same time and probably crossed paths, but... Uh, Connor, I know you're there right now in Golden, Colorado, kind of the the birthplace of this podcast. It doesn't sound like that's home for you. Where's home for you? So, so Golden and Colorado at large will always be uh, a bit of home base for me. The state and the ranges within it, and and the people are significant in my story, which we'll get into. But I've been residing in Montana and Bozeman specifically for pretty much all of 2022, and you know, finally kind of getting settled there. So. Yeah, it's been a it's been a good move for me. I spent a couple years in Mammoth, in between my Colorado chapter and in Montana, along with a sort of a bit of an unexpected detour for hip surgery in San Diego. But yeah, Montana feels right. It feels like an old friend, so I'm I'm loving it there. San Diego seems like a great place for hip surgery. A lot of old folks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this was uh, this was not a throw a dart situation. Yeah, I uh, 
So, so I grew up in California. Um, I grew up out east of San Diego, sort of in the desert, kind of high country, small town called Ramona. And I mean, it's hard to beat, right? I, I did my hip surgery and recuperation in Encinitas. Nice level surfaces, good food, great beer, lots of sunshine. So I, I'm glad I wasn't in the extreme climates for, for that recovery. A lot of crutching around. Oh man, that's so funny. We're in Florida now, like I mentioned, and uh, I needed some. I need some work on my knees, and I'm like, well, there's no better place for <laughs> kind of a kind of a, an injury of joints and whatnot than where probably some of the best doctors in the world deal with this because of the amount of retirees that live here and have a ton of hip and knee surgeries. So um, it's kind of perfect. So <laughs> that's funny. So. A small town in San Diego. Oh, well, actually, before we jump into that, I want to know, Montana is a lot of times on kind of that that list for for folks in Colorado, like the, the more a little more rugged aspect of the Rockies. I think a lot of people go to Colorado wanting that. Yeah. And realize it's not quite as rugged unless you go like to the Sangre de Cristos or San Juan or somewhere that's less like a ski town. Montana is kind of that frontier for a lot of folks uh, in Colorado. For you, tell us about some of the differences of going from Golden to Bozeman. Like, is it is it a harsher winter, like people say, and and, and maybe some of the differences that you enjoy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I, I mean, you know, Denver and sort of the whole Front Range, as you know, are sort of like mountain light, and you know, you get some <laughs> snow, but then the next day it melts off, and it's it's really quite a melting pot of folks who want to live closer to outdoor access. You know, there's a reason a large concentration of folks here from the Midwest or from Texas, right? It's kind of like a stepping stone. And and for me, that's what it served as in a lot of ways, right? For my climbing and running, for my adaptation to the winter climates. You know, I grew up on the California coast and Colorado winter didn't really set me back too much. Um, So a relatively easy growth into winter here. Montana is a whole different animal. Yeah. It, it's just, it's colder by a lot. You know, the wind chill is significant. You know, in, in my head, and this is obviously very naive, and, and I know logically that it's not true, but I, I am always like, you know, I climbed all the Colorado 14ers. I've spent <laughs> probably aggregate years of my life above 12,000 feet. And Montana is so much lower, right? Like a lot of these high points, in, especially in the northwest corner of the state, are maybe 10K uh, or 8K even. And I'm going, you know, I, I start my runs at 8K in, in Mammoth and in Colorado sometimes, but it's just significantly more rugged. And I'm maybe not smart enough to understand why other than the more northerly aspect, right? But it gets really harsh weather. It's where the stuff coming off of the, the Pacific Northwest kind of front meets the Rockies and it's just a lot colder. So that's, that's one aspect. But for me, the, you know, that's the, the easy reaction. And what I love most about Montana is that real frontier aspect. You know, it, people aren't homesteading there and, you know, riding their horses to work and that sort of thing. Obviously, it's got a pretty significant riding or, or ranching and, and um, you know, agriculture background and, and underpinning. But Montana's just kind of more mysterious across the board, right? There's there's so much less information about even the most prominent summits in, in the state. You know, Granite Peak is the Montana high point, and that gets a fair amount of traffic, you know, relatively speaking. Obviously, it doesn't get anywhere near the amount of summits per year as like a Colorado Front Range 14-er, um, but it's a, it's a technical high point, and people go to do it, do it over multiple days usually. But next door to it, there's 20-something other 12,000-foot peaks that don't even have trip reports available for them on the internet. And forget about doing a traverse between the two with any reliable information. You know, you better know someone who knows someone who is even interested in talking about it. And that's kind of, that parlays into what I really appreciate about Montana in terms of like the culture and the approach to mountain athletics, a lot of it is just get up, do it, don't talk about it. And for me as a, you know, storyteller and mountain athlete, balancing that with uh, 
you know, not angering people by sharing too much information, but also putting out stories that I think are relevant and sharing my experience for my own edification, as well as my, my partners and sponsors and supporters is kind of a, a fine line. So I, I think diving into that harder edge of, of Montana and exploring a little bit more about my motivations for doing what I do in the mountains um, has been a, a really wonderful growth experience for me, especially coming off of this, this hip surgery. So 2022 was an amazing Alpine season for me. And I'm so grateful that it largely took place in Montana. We, we had someone on the show, I think last year, that did the 50 high points of Montana in one big push. Made some monster. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. It just was the most rugged thing I'd ever heard. And this guy had done a lot. I think he rolled his ankle somewhere, like right towards the end. And he's like, what am I going to do? <laughs> and he was talking, like he, he, he seemed shell-shocked yeah. six months after after this experience talking to him, he was just staring off. I'm like, what an experience. And, and you're right. The ruggedness is what I'm sure a lot of folks are after out there in that, that ranch life. You get a little bit of that Southern Colorado, which is, I loved it down there, but yeah, you just have to kind of go North to experience it. And it, because then you've got some of those major predators out there too, which are not just the landscape ruggedness, but like the, the, the wildlife itself, was was more dangerous and more you know had to prepare more for it was it's an amazing place it's an amazing place it is yeah and you know what obviously like the grizzly bear factor is you know at face value very terrifying and running with bear spray has been a, a new experience for me you know you, you can't mess around out there and you know the the bear tooth range has been it, it, it's almost exclusively off trail. You have these, the bear teeth contains all of the 12,000 foot peaks in Montana, you know, including the state high point. And you go in there on a trail and then for the rest of your day, you're just bushwhacking. You're on talus, you're fording creeks, you're on loose ridge lines. Like it, it's just no man's land. And it does raise the stakes of like, don't mess up out there. You know, if you do roll an ankle and you're, 12 miles in on Talus, you're in big trouble. I, I think like that ruggedness and wildness, which also reflects in, you know, the level of information, um, as well as kind of the, the balance of interacting with local ecosystems. I mean, these ranges are the most heavily grizzly ranges in the lower 48, not to mention you have to contend with angry moose, which are, I think, statistically far more dangerous um than than grizzlies and all the other stuff that's that's moving around out there it just it, it raises the bar significantly so it's been quite the the training ground brandon joy was his name okay uh, the wild ned on instagram and yeah 18 days montana's 50 highest peaks and uh definitely a fastest known time on that but hunger injuries mental toughness i mean it was it was everything i don't think he had any crazy animal encounters but that's that's he probably got lucky there lucky yeah you ought to talk to um and you might have had him on already but nate bender i'm having him on this week oh that's wild so i i don't know nate personally um i i know of his exploits and you know again like half a connection away type thing but i mean he did them all he did the twelve thousand foot high points in the the bear tooth and then he just did this crazy thing in glacier i'm linking the six 10k peaks in glacier which is more than likely i think what he'll end up talking about with you because it was this last summer but that guy's montana you'll you'll see what i'm talking about it's folks like him that i have to like okay we have to talk about one thing because anything you've done is a is a full episode and it's it's tough when you have someone with with kind of like you like with all this stuff to talk about how do we how do we draw folks into one story it's just like it's just like writing a piece. You, you got to write about one thing, a lot of times. So, yeah, I'm excited to talk to Nate. We've been working uh, through Athletic Brewing, and and funny enough, man, Montana, like all those small mountain towns, they freaking love this beer. It's so it's so great. And and, and you're from where we brew, San Diego, actually. So right, um, or that area. But anyway, well, well, tell us about 
getting, I know it's a big thing and I'm trying not to like repeat everything anyone's ever asked you on a podcast, but tell us about what philosophy has drawn you out to these mountains and away from home, uh, from a small town in Southern California to the brutal winters and rugged peaks of Montana. What has gotten you there? Was it a, a clear trajectory or was it just exploring and seeing what's around the corner and taking opportunities as they come. Tell us about the philosophy that has gotten you to where you are and how you're, how you're living your life. Small question. Yeah, right. It's uh, all, I, I, you know, I, I think for me where I'll start is I'm just the luckiest dog in the world. And I have had so much positive influence and guidance and folks that have pointed me in the right direction at the right time to, of course, you know, capitalize on opportunities and, and make use of uh, luck and connection and skill and all these things. But I didn't see snow till I moved to Colorado at age 21. And, you know, my family didn't travel when I, when I was young. Uh, my parents were school teachers and we went to the beach for a week every summer. But it, in terms of like real exposure to what was out there, let alone, you know, climbing mountains and talking about it as a career. I, <laughs> I couldn't have even ideated that in, in my wildest dreams. And so, you know, I think it's really easy to look back and draw a somewhat straight line um, and, and, you know, have this, this hindsight of, well, I made this decision that led me to this. And I, the fact of the matter is it's just very much not the case. And so for me, what's been kind of the, the leading line has really been this philosophy introduced to me by a professor that I TA'd for, um, who ultimately connected me to my friend, Eric Weinmayer, um, best known as the, the first blind man to climb Mount Everest. And, you know, this, this idea of as cheesy as it might sound like this open heart policy has led me to all the great ranges of the U S and to every experience I've had, positive and negative, right? These deep, meaningful experiences in and out of the mountains alongside some of the best people I know. And and I think where that journey truly takes a turn for me is is when I moved to Colorado in 2015. I had never been to the state. (laughs) I had a Nissan Altima packed with all my stuff and had just finished up my college education at Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, um, right on the Central Coast great place to go to school. I had Skyped with Eric and his father, who was his business manager. And I just remember thinking like, this is incredibly surreal. Like this guy, we're Skyping, first of all, he's completely blind and I'm interacting with him. I have no sense of, you know, where this decision will take my life. Other than that, I wanted more from the offerings in front of me. I I didn't want to work in an office I didn't want to do something that didn't just ignite me every single day. And I think that's not necessarily always realistic, right? Sometimes you just have to put your head down and and buckle down and work. But I, I just knew that I was meant for more in life and had that opportunity in front of me. So I packed up my my little car and unsuccessfully drove out to Colorado. My transmission exploded in the desert outside Las Vegas. And it was just an unmitigated disaster. I couldn't afford to fix it or get a hotel or anything. It was a complete trial, but um, yeah, I made it out here and I started climbing with Eric and that truly set the stage for the, the rest of my life, right? The last decade of my life has been spent in the American West and traversing and traveling and climbing and experiencing all these things that the rich culture of the West and the mountains have to offer. Um, so what a, what an unpredictable turn for me. What were the people around you saying when you, when you went out on your own? I don't know if you're close with your family or not, or if there's a lot of family. And, uh, I, I know for me, there was, there was probably more apprehension than they let on. Yeah. And I, and I, now I hear things where it's like, oh yeah, we were taking bets on when you'd quit or when you'd give up. And I was like, oh really? Wow. Thank you. Thanks mom. Thanks, um, yeah. But, uh, 
you know, what, what, what were some of the things around you when you were going out to do something that probably no one around there had, had done or, or you didn't know what, what the path ahead was going to hold? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. Today's podcast is sponsored by Let's Get Checked, a worldwide leader in at-home health tests that put you in control of your own health care. What I loved about Let's Get Checked is it gives you the freedom to understand what's happening with your body with their 30-plus at-home tests, everything from men's health to women's health uh, to general wellness checks to looking up if you have certain conditions or not. It's amazing how wide the range is, and you don't even have to leave your home. You don't have to set up an appointment, go across town, wait six weeks to get some simple test done. It comes right to your house, easy to follow instructions. You put in whatever sample is needed for the test, put it back in the box, it ships back out, and within two to five days you have results. You can even schedule a follow-up call with one of their doctors, one of their clinicians that can go over any abnormalities or answer any questions you have. And in some cases, the clinical team can even prescribe medication, which can be sent to the pharmacy of your choice. If you would like to try one of their 30-plus at-home tests, use the URL link in the show notes at trylgc.com ASP and use the code ASP25 at checkout for 25% off. Again, that's ASP25 for 25% off at the link in the show notes. I've really enjoyed the process of getting some tests done that I've always wanted to, but just didn't feel like going through the hassle, but it's important. It's important to do. And I think you're going to enjoy it too. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You know, to some extent, like my ignorance of what lay ahead kind of insulated the people around me from that, right? Like I, I didn't know that I would climb these peaks that would lead me to, you know, have an interview with BBC and then launch my actual like athletic career. Right. So I didn't go out saying I'm going to become a professional mountain athlete, or I'm going to, you know, start this media agency that I now run coyote, um, that does commercials and branding and storytelling for outdoor brands. I, I didn't know any of that. I just knew that I wanted a life of adventure. And I, I think you know, my, my parents were very supportive, but also largely ignorant of what even lay ahead of me in, in possibility. Um, I, I think that in addition to that, I was also sort of already a bit of a, a black sheep in, in terms of what I pursued and, and why. And I couldn't necessarily at the time explore or explain those motivations to folks. Um, you know, I dropped out of school for a quarter to uh, moved to Texas and knock on doors selling alarm systems. And it, it was a really formative chapter and, and very much like a growth experience for me. But at the time, like my, my aunt, I remember was just so mad at me. She had been helping me through school and I had interned for her sort of part-time my, my freshman year. In addition to, I was rigging lighting for concerts in San Diego and doing like production runner work, like getting uh special honey and pizza for journey. Like the lead singer of journey need this special Manuka honey. And I'm just like, send me on a vision quest for it. So I was doing all these like weird odd jobs from basically like 16 on. And so for me to, you know, quit school for a bit and go knock on doors, I didn't know what that would do for me. Uh, at the time, I just knew it was different in that I would reap the benefits of that down the line. And so I think that, you know, expanding that my whole adult life has been a process of saying yes, and then figuring out a way to maximize and learn from those experiences. And it it just so happens to often be the mountains, um, or at least the mountains are the underpinning and the foundation for me as a person. And the rest of my work is resultant from that. Was there a moment where, you know, I, I, mean, I don't know, you, there, there's this pressure when you get out of school uh, to, to have your life figured out. For some reason, I did not feel that pressure. <laughs> and I look back a little bit embarrassingly, like, dang, I really, I mean, the people around me must have thought I was just totally like, what the hell is he doing? Like, what am I doing with my life? I just was going on adventures. And 
it didn't like it didn't scare me at the time or didn't think anything of it. Now I look back and almost shudder at like, oh my god, it, that could have very easily not ended up and ended the way it has or gotten to this point where it has come full circle. But my parents never put that pressure on me. They were just like, yeah, it's a great, you know, great. We're, you know, you you that to them it was finished school. That was it. Right. Anything else? I mean, I could have probably died right then and there and uh, life complete uh, to them. But yeah, was there a moment for you where you were like, this is the right path for me? Wherever this is going, this is the right path for me. Maybe it's not one single moment, but one that just comes to mind. If I was to be asked this question, it'd probably change depending on the day. But is there anything that comes to mind for you? Probably the single biggest turning point in in my career was the evolution from my personal climbing, which of course is still a big component of what I'm doing, to expanding that beyond my own selfish goals and, and desires. And this type of, of theme has reoccurred repeatedly. But for me, one of the, the most impactful moments of my career was I, I got a phone call from uh, a woman named Narissa Cannon. And Narissa who, who's now this great friend of mine, is a, a woman who lives in uh, Cedar City, Utah. She lives in a tiny home on a farm that her and her partner built, and she's in a wheelchair. Uh, Narissa can't use her legs. She has a, a neurological or neuromuscular condition that from, I, I guess, you know, her mid-20s on has prevented her from walking or using her legs whatsoever. And so Narissa went from you know, active, riding her mountain bike, climbing, exploring, hiking, running around with her dog to can't walk. And, you know, that's, that's a big moment in your life. If, if it is a moment where you have to actually choose. And, and I think for most people, that's every morning, you know, choosing to look forward and choosing to wake up and live a beautiful life, even though it's not what you expected or hoped or dreamed that it would look like. And, and so Narissa uh, showed up at a No Berries event. No Berries is Eric Weinmayer's nonprofit uh, focusing on folks with different abilities, kind of getting them out of their comfort zone, giving them new opportunities. And Narissa had come to an event. You know, we, we kind of hit it off. And she called me a couple months down the line and, and said, hey, you know, I, I want to climb a 14er. I don't even know where to start. I, I don't know what peaks are, are viable or what you would recommend. And she knew that I had climbed all, all 58 of them. And so, you know, I, I think like that's part of what helps me to encourage or to, encourages me to share the story, right? Is I, I put it out there that I'd climbed all these 14ers and how they had changed my life. And as a result of that, among many other things, I got a call from Narissa asking for my advice. And that slowly morphed into, hey, you know what? why don't you come on out? You know, we'll, we'll pick a date and we'll get, get some folks together and we'll do our absolute best to get you up a 14er safely as much under your own power as possible. And, you know, achieve this, this dream for you. So I sent out uh, an email and basically emailed our, our community of, you know, folks around the front range, friends of mine who, you know, run in the mountains, climb, are just tough, tough folks, some kind of local businesses, Arcteryx, um, Colorado being one of them, and some, some other nonprofits here, <clears throat> sent out a big email blast talking about Narissa's story uh, with the date, the information. And that morning at Juanella Pass, which is the kind of launch point for Mount Bierstadt, over 30 people who had never met Narissa in their lives showed up. And for seven hours, we pushed and pulled and lifted and supported Narissa as she used her, her hand cycle to, you know, generate the smallest amount of power to churn the wheels over rocks in the path and through creeks. We got to the final summit Ridge where it became just too rocky for, for the wheelchair. And Narissa knew that she needed more help. And I, I watched my friend Britain war hoist Narissa and carry her on his back at 14,000 feet, the last 100 yards to the summit. Jeez. And we stood there with all 30 people 
including my dad on, I guess, what was his 57th birthday, uh, straight from sea level. We, we stood there on the, on the summit of Bierstadt and I had this moment with Nerissa where I, this was the moment for me, right? I knew I was in the right place because I could see in her eyes and the reflection of the, the mountains of, that were unfolding before her, just the purest joy and happiness and sense of wholeness and completeness and achievement in that that you can get in your life. I watched her look out at these vistas that she never thought she could see and playing a small part in gathering the, the horsepower and more importantly, I think believing in what, when she reached out, she thought was maybe not really realistic believing in that saying yes and then figuring it out i i just knew that i i couldn't live any other way right and that experience and the resultant media coverage and connections from that for me actually springboarded my career as a as a mountain runner um and and kind of led me to where i am today but wow that's all just a byproduct of that open heart policy of of saying this is a crazy idea for a woman in a wheelchair to climb a 14er. Let's do it. And just what a special experience for everyone involved, um, especially Narissa. Wow. Dude, that's so wild to think uh, how life-changing experiences can be that you, uh, that you just don't plan for. The opportunity comes and you just kind of grab it as it's going by. Did that just make you start to think about what else is out there? What other, what other opportunities are out there for folks that life-changing experiences? How do you think that did change change you or change the trajectory at all? There, there's kind of two components there, right? And, and so one is sort of the emotional side of things, which is obviously a bit more difficult to define, but I think reflects more in my writing and, and a lot of my you know, behind-the-scenes work. You know, and I got this same feedback from JT of, of Consequence of Habit. I'm not the easiest person to research. And, and part of that is because I've got my hands in a lot of different things. And increasingly behind the scenes is, is the way I prefer that. But, you know, from a functional side, I, so two weeks later, I was in a hotel room in New York City. I got a phone call from a UK number and it was a reporter from from British Broadcasting Company, BBC International, and they wanted to interview Narissa and myself. And I, I, you know, we had posted it on Facebook or something, and it just went completely viral. And that's how they got wind of it. And I remember doing this interview in my hotel room in New York City, and just knowing that this was going to change my life. That interview, the publication of it, the story, led me to my initial sponsor connections, right? I, I went to Arcteryx and said, I've got this trip coming up, you know, please trust me and, and give me a jacket and a little bit of a travel budget. And they they did. And that kickstarted what has now been my almost four-year relationship with Arcteryx as an ambassador and mountain athlete and, um, you know, community representative for the brand. I'm so lucky to have that, right? I mean, there are there are folks who are faster, better, stronger athletes than I. Um, there are folks who are better storytellers than I. I got very lucky and sit at the intersection of athlete and storyteller, and and that opportunity, you know, has allowed me to do this full time. So, from a just like a nuts and bolts perspective. I then started running and climbing in the mountains with support from from brand partners, which is something I never had before, right? I was just doing it because I loved it. That was not a turn I was expecting uh, in, in my life. Yeah, those are the kinds of moments that, that very pivotal moments. I was told by a professor in college, there's three to five pivotal moments in life, and you're gonna they're gonna really stick out. And I was like, wow, that's it. And uh, <laughs> and he's like, yeah, when you look back, there's gonna be three to five. And to me, that feels like potentially one of them. But so with that story and helping Narissa climb a 14er, I don't know, were were, were new things possible? 
now that that weren't before in the sense of not just from a career point of view, from a storytelling point of view or from, you know, I, I don't know that that honestly sounds like the, 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 the origin story for like, I'm starting a foundation to help challenged athletes right. climb mountains, but that's not the direction you've taken it to this point. What other things did it open? You, you know, the biggest change for me for resulting from that would be just an audience, right? I mean, I, so I, I spent four years from 2015 through 2019 working directly for for Eric Weinmayer. You know, as I mentioned, he's the the first blind man to climb Mount Everest. And and what are you doing for a blind man that climbed Everest? Like, what does working for him look like? Because <laughs> it could be a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the day, my friend. Okay. Um, so you know, my functional title was like marketing manager in, in business development. Eric does keynote speeches and his keynote speeches are a way to distribute his messaging with regards to, you know, building strong teams and breaking through barriers. Um, he speaks to large corporations uh, that just need a little booster, need some, some motivation, some structure uh, for their teams. My, my work ranged from managing those events and booking them and actually traveling to them and, you know, running the keynote presentation while Eric's up on stage performing all the way to climbing trips with Eric and taking photos and documenting the experience and making connections while we're out and about. So, you know, very much a sort of a a right-hand man, assistant business manager role that gave me so much entree into the outdoor world and strong connections. And, you know, I, I, I do want to be just like very clear with regards to, you know, my climbing wouldn't exist without Eric, right? So I, I learned to climb from a blind guy. And, you know, all of these, these folks that are professional climbers, but to me at the time, I was just 21, excited about life and opportunity. So I learned to climb from this guy, Timmy O'Neill, who is a very prominent adventurer and climber at the time to me, he was just Timmy. And I'm realizing now with hindsight, the benefits of that type of instruction at a really impressionable age um, and and a particularly dangerous age. You know, a lot of climbers don't make it through that early chapter because it's so fraught with incidents and high potential for mistakes. You know, Eric got me started on that path. So I, I guess to to circle back to, and we can talk more about Eric, I, I would love to, but to circle back to your initial question, the big change for me from the Nerissa experience and my resultant partnerships and, and relationships with brands was an audience. It, it's kind of the idea of, you know, if a, if a tree falls in the forest, but no one's around, then no one hears it. And I, I don't have, um, you know, this very grand sense of, what I'm doing or the, you know, I guess, significance of climbing per se. But I do think that, especially through my writing and my work in the outdoor industry, I'm trying to speak to something broader and and more universal. And, you know, someone climbing a mountain in a wheelchair is incredible and amazing. Challenged athletes is not the end-all be-all. I think for me, there's something even bigger about how we move through the world and how we become whole and learn about ourselves and grow through experience. Mountains for me are just the context. So having that audience and emerging from under the umbrella and and frankly, the shadow of Eric, right? It's hard to be uh, a storyteller when the guy next to you is the blind guy who climbed Mount Everest, right? He's like one of the most interesting people in the world. (laughs) So it's like, how could I ever top that? I can't. And I've, I've had to focus on carving out what is meaningful to me and, and I've had the good fortune of that having some meaning and effect on others. So take us through maybe some of the next steps after that, like eventually going out on your own. I know what you, you know, starting a business with the Coyote Collective. Do you have a plan for your life? Or are you allowing things like the connection with Eric or the connection with Narissa to, to happen? And that's not, and I'll just preface this, that's not a bad way to live. Like so many companies, so many people uh, do things because 
opportunity strikes like that or things just align. People that we think are, I mean, that are foundational to social change or to change in the business world or uh, just cultural have done so almost accidentally. What's your approach that to that? I, I think, you know, to summarize that for me, the most important thing has been and will continue to be trusting the process. I, I think that, like, I, I don't have the arrogance to think that I can shape with exact fine detail the next chapter of, of my life. But, and, and, you know, that's illustrated to me in so many ways. I mean, whether that's failing to summit a peak or complete an adventure, right? I have this massive uh, sort of publicized failure on a, a link up in California where, you know, I had invested tons of, of money and years of my life and relationships into this. It didn't go the way I planned. You know, breakups happen, friendships dissolve, death, disease, et cetera, right? All of these things you can't predict. And so for me, I, I have a, a loose plan looking forward, but the details are, are so fuzzy and Frankly, I, I don't care to try to uncover them. I, I think that part of that excitement is is in the journey. And I know I'm doing the right things. I know I'm showing up. I know I'm working hard. I know I'm honest and clear and fair with people. And you know, if if that doesn't result in pure success from say a financial perspective this time then I'll, I'll go back to the drawing board and, and try again. But uh, I think trusting the process of growth has been the most important thing to me because I can look back at where I started and, you know, look at photos from my first camp at the base of a 14er and just go, wow, like these amazing stories have such humble beginnings. And I would never want to preload that feeling by knowing where my story ends or telling myself I know where my story ends because that's where all the richest experience of experiences of my life have bloomed from. That's awesome. And and, and I want to ask you about currently where that where that journey is taking you right now, the cross section of what's happening right now. Not not looking super far ahead, but what are you doing now? But before that, what are some practical things for folks to help them kind of kind of give them the best chance on this journey, if that makes sense, or the longest runway. I know for me, it was living below my means. Uh, staying out of debt was a big one, getting through, you know, paying off school as much quickly as possible and maintaining that. And that, that has up until today allowed me a lot of freedom, uh, to explore or take opportunities as they come. Another is, uh, just talking with a lot of people, network networking gets a bad rap, but it's like, you know, doing this, doing this, talking and, uh, just, just meeting people, not doing it inauthentically doing it, you know, in a, in a way that's authentic, but what are some practical things that have helped you on this journey or some skills you've picked up that would, you know, someone graduating college might find helpful. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You know, in, in some respects, I'm pretty old school. I think there's just so much value in in-person connection to the point where I, I think it, it, it can't even be overstated. Um, I, you know, one of my business mentors was Ed Weinmayer, Eric's father who worked on Wall Street, was a Vietnam vet, sadly passed this summer. And Ed's passing left not a, a you know day-to-day hole in my life, but for me, an understanding of how much I learned from him since the age of 21. Um, I'm, I'm 29 now. And Ed hated my long hair. God forbid I had my tattoos showing, but you know, he's he's show up, firm handshake. We don't even need a contract because I looked you in the eyes and, and we have a deal. I think that type of old school approach to seeing the person behind the paper or the person behind the, the business deal is so important and foundational. So I, I guess like to sum that up in person, whenever possible, um, I just flew to New York two weeks ago for a meeting that 
I had no idea where it would take me, but you know, it's going to result in some some great opportunities for my company and myself. And I, I've reached a point in my career, and I think that it's important to recognize this where I can't go, ah oh, man, I can't afford the flight or the hotel rooms are crazy expensive or logistically it's tough. You just have to show up sometimes and put yourself in those situations to capitalize on luck. I guess that that kind of segues into my next one. And this is a probably a horrible point, but get lucky. And I think, you know, people ask me a lot about like, oh, you you run for Arcteryx. How do I make that happen in my life? And, you know, beyond sort of the like nuts and bolts answers, I, I don't really have one because I just got very, very lucky. But the the advice I can give from that is you have to you have to humble yourself to be in those positions, right? I, I, I didn't start with a contract from any of my, my sponsors initially. I, I started with showing up in person, asking for a small amount of their time and letting them witness from me what I wanted to do and the intention behind that. And if it doesn't work for them, great. But in some situations, you get that trust from people. So you got to put yourself in those positions to get lucky. Yeah. I guess to to resort to other cheesy stuff, like, you know, there's the classic, like people forget what you said, but they remember how you made them feel. And I think that's like Maya Angelou. That's so very true, right? Because looking back at, at Narissa, and as we stood on the summit of that 14er together, I couldn't tell you a word that was that was said um, between us, but I do remember that exact feeling and and never ever wanting to let go of that and lose sight. And so I think that you got to be really careful how you move through the world and how you affect the people that you come into contact with. And and so from a you know actual advice you can take perspective, it's the smallest things of smiling and interacting with someone who's making your coffee, you know even just making eye contact with and acknowledging someone who is homeless and asking for your help, even if you don't have the cash or you don't want to give it what I don't even care, but acknowledging their humanity is I think the most important first step. And so I think that's really at the end of the day, like a, a way of moving through the world that requires you to be awake and aware that's really hard to do. It's very tiring. And there's a lot of negativity and strife and difficulty, even just in the day to day, right? Like lost my car keys this morning, dropped my favorite coffee mug. My dog threw up on my bed, like all the, and I'm like, I have a podcast, but you know, all those things are just part of life. And I, I think being aware and awake and showing up for all that is really important. I was complaining to my dad a few years ago about all the stuff going on. And uh, he goes, son, that's just life. Like, shut up, yeah. is what he told me. <laughs> and uh, he's an old redneck down in the South. I love him to death. But yeah, it's life just happens. And the more people you talk to, the more that you realize that. And um, no matter how good they, they look online or what's going on, anyone will be, admit that has half a brain that, you know, some days are just like that. But the, really great advice there. Get lucky. That's interesting. My wife says I'm very lucky, but I don't think what a lot of people see is the amount of rocks you turn over, the amount of connections you attempt, or the amount of areas you shoot. Most miss. But those ones that hit, that connection with Eric or uh, with Narissa or with Arcteryx, there's no telling how many brands you did reach out to. And it's just, it, it could have been someone else saying yes first to you. It didn't have to be, you didn't have Arcteryx on your wall as a kid saying, that's what I'm going for. Those stories do happen. We do hear about them. There are movies like that. Uh, but in the real world, a lot of times it is taking the opportunity that, that, that presents itself. But there are ways to increase the, the, you know, your chances in a lot of ways. You can increase your luck. For, for sure. And, and, you know, I, I guess like to sort of revisit that briefly, like I do think it's important to say, I believe in being goal oriented, right? Like mm -hmm. I think that you should have things that you're working towards and, and 
You're not just like bouncing around through the world, pinballing off the latest opportunity. I think that's really critical. And, you know, that manifests for me often as like visualization and journaling with, with some intent of what I'm doing and, and how I want the experience to look. And if it doesn't look that way or it doesn't turn out that way, okay. But that level of intentionality, I think is a really good, you know, functional piece, but yeah, just be open to the world and be open to, to magic. Right. I mean, so this, this is kind of a wild story from this summer. I had hip surgery in August of, of 2021 and I thought I was done. Right. Like I, I thought that my mountain running and my days of FKTs and really pushing it were going to be curbed. And, and I didn't know how that would look. So I spent this a year rehabbing my hip and started kind of towing back in, in June, July, and really hit the ground running in August of, of 2022 with my new hip. And I'm, I'm so grateful to say that I am back at a hundred percent and awesome, you know, different in some ways, right? My hip is not maybe functionally the same, but the experience I have in the base of fitness I have is actually overriding that in the, the, the emotional growth I went through, through that process has allowed me to be smarter about how I use my body and, and when I do it. So, you know, one of my goals for this summer was to do Granite Peak, which is the Montana State High Point. I wanted to do it car to car in, you know, quick style. Granite's a monster. It's, it's like a 30 mile day. Um, you've got fourth and fifth class terrain near the top, some snow travel, not a lot of trail, a lot of off country kind of like navigating through these crazy high alpine steps and just a beast of mountain. I think I think it's actually the most difficult state high point minus Denali. I've heard that. I've actually heard yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Rainier maybe is right there and, and logistically it's tough with the glaciers and, and the weather and all of that, but granite's a monstrosity. Certainly a step up from any of the 14ers or even the Grand Teton, which... Wyoming High Peak too. Uh, is that Gannett? Gannett's yeah. Gannett. Yeah, so you have Gannett and Granite, just add R. And those are both big old days. Although folks in my category of, you know, fast and light type approach are narrowing the, the field there, right? They're finding new and intriguing ways to cut the approach time you know, doing it at the right time of season so you don't have to have glacier gear, so on and so forth, right? Just that constant kind of sharpening of the the edge there. I knew I wanted to do granite and I had visualized it. I, I thought about it so much. I actually, you know, you can't see the peak from anywhere. It's It's so deep in there. I think you get like 10 or 12 miles in before you can even see <laughs> the peak, which is so wild. Like, it's just buried in the heart of the Beartooth, um, right on the Montana Wyoming border. You know, my, my buddy, Charlie and I, Charlie fear is, is one of my great friends. He lives in Bozeman and he's very humble, very undercover. Um, you know, doesn't really post about this stuff. And he and I have climbed hundreds of, of, of mountains together. You know, we, we did this ill-fated California trip together. We have this enduring connection and, and friendship and love for each other in the mountains. And, he lives in Bozeman. Um, we had queued it up to do Granite in August. And we, again, you know, in this Montana style, like we wanted to do Granite to East Granite and traverse along this fifth class ridge and then traverse over to Mystic Mountain and potentially Villard Spires, which are more 12ers. But there's just no information. And so we had gone into this thinking, you know, we'll do Granite. We'll do granite car to car, no problem. Um, we both have the fitness and the, the mountain experience to do that. You know, Charlie has, I think, the, the FKT on the Moran picnic. You ride from Jackson, swim across the lake, climb Moran, return. He's just a maniac. So we knew that granite was well within reach. And we only could, could find one person who had done the traverse to East Granite. And they indicated that there was like kind of a really sketchy looking down climb at the notch. and. We weren't going to like it, but uh, it wasn't so bad. So I'm, I'm pacing around my house the night before Charlie picks me up, pacing around with this like nervous energy, which I don't typically get um, before a, a big day. I'm usually pretty serene and, and, and calm about it. You know, 
I know the work's been done. And so there's no sense in being nervous. I'm, I'm nervously pacing right before Charlie pulls up. I run upstairs to this closet where I have some stuff stored. I pull down this bin. It's kind of like the hoarder drawer, like all my kind of random stuff, um, you know, stickers and patches and like charging cables and whatnot. And I reach in, pull out from the very bottom of this necklace. And I had gotten this necklace in 2017 on my on my birthday, on August 27th. Um, I guess it would have been my 24th birthday. And I was in Silverton. We had had this absolutely insane experience where we hit a deer, totaled my friend's car, got towed into Durango, into Durango, broke into a U-Haul and slept in it, and then walked into Durango on the highway, took the train into the Chicago basin and climbed all the 14ers in a push, and then got out to Silverton. And, and on that Jeez. day, on my birthday, after doing this like absurd you know, like laughable adventure with no way home, right? The car had been totaled. So we just kind of were like, that's a problem for later. There was uh, this jeweler in Silverton and he sold myself and my two friends, Johnny and Jackson, these necklaces. Um, and we put them on rawhide and I wore it for a few years and just kind of had fallen out of the habit of wearing it. Um, I pulled this necklace out from my house in Montana and I hadn't thought about it in a long time. I used to wear it every single day. And I put it on and it just felt right. And I kind of started pace or stopped pacing. Um, Charlie pulled up. We hop in my truck, drive the three hours, sleep in the back. And the next day we go and do granite. And we're, you know, bushwhacking up through these huckleberry bushes with like bear scat everywhere and like vertical dirt at, you know, 5 a.m. Like as the sun is starting to rise the worst possible time to be in bear country, you know, pull in one hand, bear spray in the other, shouting for, for grizzlies. And we, we summit granite pretty early in the day. I think we summited granite after maybe four hours and change, if I'm not mistaken, perhaps a little bit longer, but you know, we're already 12, 13 miles in probably eight K avert at this point. So we summited granite. We were really pleased with our time, but I was feeling a little funky with the elevation, for some reason, it was just getting to me. And I, I typically don't have problems with that. And we, there was one other person on the summit, um, a guy that we had passed kind of right below it and, you know, said goodbye to him. And we walked off the wrong way, right? We walked towards East Granite down the ridge. And this guy's looking at, he's like, hey, where are you guys going? Like, there's nothing over there because it's this knife edge ridge. Yeah. And we traverse off. We start going along the ridge, getting thinner and thinner, kind of scrambling. The Beartooths are known for being rugged and just very loose and exposed. And we get to this down climb, this chimney that this our friend had referenced. And we're both looking at it just going like, no way. We want nothing to do with this. It was this like 200 foot off angle chimney filled with loose blocks and it was wet. And, you know, you go in there and it's four points on at all times. But if one blows, you're falling thousands of feet down the north base of, of Granite Peak to the basin below. And we looked at it, looked at it. And I eventually just kind of decided, like, we've come this far. Um, I'm going to try it out. I'm going to get in there, assess it. If it feels horrible or feels too loose and I'm not comfortable, I'll get out of there. So I, I down climbed this chimney. It took me 20 minutes to climb this this 200 feet because I'm just testing every single hold. Charlie actually couldn't even watch. He just stood on the other side of the ridge and was like, let me know when you're down, you know, holler when you're safe. So we got through it. Charlie came down. We finished the rest of the traverse, which was fairly straightforward, maybe fourth, low fifth, you know, climbing type scrambling to get to the summit of East Granite. And we're looking back at, at this ridge from whence we came, this spiny serrated ridge nobody in sight, just completely isolated in the heart of the Beartooths in my new home state of Montana. And I was so happy. I knew that we were now off of the dangerous terrain, right? So the rest of the day was third, maybe fourth class, nothing too crazy, a lot of mileage still to go, obviously, but we were out of danger. And, you know, barring any crazy accidents, like some rockfall or something like that, we weren't going to get injured or, or, or killed on this traverse. So 
we step off the summit of of East Granite, me and my best buddy, Charlie, who I've climbed all these mountains with. And I step off onto the lower plateau where the terrain mellows out into kind of like this contouring class two. And as soon as I'm out of this danger, the necklace that I had pulled from this bin, the cord snaps and it flies off into oblivion. And I'm just, I'm like, I'm freaking out. I'm like, Charlie, you will not believe what just happened. I hadn't actually even told him about the necklace because I didn't want it to be this like bad omen, you know, hanging over us. The necklace snaps off and flies into the, into the abyss. And, you know, maybe it's chance, right? Like maybe my backpack rubbed it or it was just time, but I like to believe in a little bit of magic. And and I think that that nervous energy and my, you know, need to put that on, maybe there's, maybe there's something there. And, and, you know, we completed the rest of the day safely. I, I called my friend Johnny, who I had bought the necklace with and told him the story and he was blown away. You know, maybe, um, maybe we look for patterns as, as humans and we're looking for meaning and significance, but I just think life is cooler that way. I think life is more beautiful when you open yourself to those possibilities and think like it came all this way with me to in this sort of talismanic way, protect me from this funky situation where I was a bit out of my depth and committed to it anyway. And maybe 20 other times that story ends differently, but that day I came off the mountain safely and I I just love the unknown of, of that type of thing. And you littered. I'm just kidding. And I littered. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, because my leave no trace clean record. Yeah. No, no, no. That's awesome. You know, that's it's. I'm reading the story of my child right now, where some magic sunglasses help you see things in a brighter way, and then they break. And then what you realize, it's not the glasses that were magic. It was just they they forced you to look in a new in a new perspective. But you don't necessarily need them. Uh, it was just. Good to have those, but when those things are taken from us, it we we realize like, oh, that that power is still there, that that perspective still there. We can tap into that even when the object itself is gone. That's really cool. Well, part of you is up there, and a part of your story is up there, no matter what. Yeah, and you know, we imbue these objects with significance and power, but I I think like just from a headline side, you know, that would be, I guess, my last point of of advice is, is like, believe in magic. Don't, don't ever grow out of that sense of wonder and joy and curiosity about the world because it just might be. That's awesome. Gosh, well, Connor, I'm going to have to go. Uh, was there any, could you tell us really uh, quickly about, uh, the coyote collective and what you do there? Absolutely. Yeah. So coyote, you know, formerly the coyote collective is, outdoor media agency with the goal of telling more impactful and important stories, um, particularly in the outdoor space. Uh, we have the, the great privilege of working with amazing clients to craft commercial pieces, photos, writing, multimedia, you know, editorial layouts to tell stories that I think are more universal and powerful than, you know, conquests of summits or personal achievement. We work with outdoor and outdoor adjacent brands, everything from, you know, running, climbing, skiing, biking to whiskey, denim, and sort of like everyday carry products with the goal of influencing the industry at large to tell stories that matter. My behind camera work and direction and production with Coyote has outpaced my my need to have sponsorships and be a, you know, mountain athlete, because I know that my story can only go so far. And so Coyote has been the growth of that and will continue to be the outgrowth of that. I I work with three of my best friends at Coyote. We found and run the company together. What a blessing to, to work with my buddies and tell cool stories for clients that, that want to hear them. That's awesome. Well, Connor, thanks for joining us and telling some stories on the Adventure Sports Podcast. And uh, yeah, who who knows where this is going to go? It's is exciting stuff. Yeah, thanks for the 
sort of unconventional format and uh, just rolling with it with me. I, I appreciate you and I look forward to telling more stories. Absolutely. Third time's a charm too, for folks that don't know. We we had to cancel this one a couple times, but hey, that's life. Yeah, got a little more under our belts to talk about. There we go. <laughs> First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.